Amen. Good to see you today. I love that song. You'll never walk alone. You're faithful. You're always going to be there. And God is truly the the model for faithfulness, that no matter what, every hour, every minute. But in life, we also find that it helps when there are people who imitate that and are there for us as well. And in 2 Samuel chapter 10, we get a picture of kind of an example of that, I think, that's interesting. And so let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 10 as we're going through the book of 2 Samuel. Um, You know, at this point, David has established the kingdom. They've created not only a solid, unified kingdom, but they've established pretty consistent borders where they had agreements, peace agreements with the countries that surrounded them. And so, you know, this should have been a great time for them, a time of of prosperity and a time of blessing. But it's always something. And what we see happening here is it was so unnecessary, a war where thousands of people gave their lives um, just because of what started as a misunderstanding which is, by the way, how most wars start. But let's just jump right in. Verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 10. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. His name was Nahash. Ammon was the nation that was immediately east of Israel. Ammon is, would be where present-day Jordan is, And, well, Ammon, Jordan, comes from the name Ammon, but also into where is present-day Iraq. So if you're picturing Israel and you head toward the east, Ammon was the nation that was adjacent to them. And it's important, if you're going to have peace, you need to have borders that are secure with people who aren't your enemies on the other side of them, that really you're greatly blessed when you have that. And they had that because they had a great relationship with Ammon. But now Nahash died and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. You know, in the the scriptures, if you go through and trace, for instance, all the kings of Israel and Judah, when somebody's son takes over, it's a 50-50 proposition. Like a good king has his son take over there's a 50% chance that he's going to be good, a 50% chance he's going to be bad. People tend to, even who are good leaders, tend not to develop the next generation very well. It just, it just happens. I think they probably think they'll always be there. And so certainly this is a case we see Hammond, you know, it's like uh, Tommy Boy. It's like you were not ready for what comes next at all. It's kind of like the... The Oakland Raiders, Al Davis, one of the greatest owners in the history of football. Al, you know, the, the Raiders were an amazing team. He died. His son took over. They're like one of the worst teams in all of football. They're a complete embarrassment. And Mark Davis still thinks somehow he's going to turn it around. Well, that's the way this was. Hannon shows up, and he's reigning in his place. Now, David doesn't know Hannon, but... He always had such a great relationship with his dad. 
he decided to send a delegation of, of representatives, some of his servants, to the funeral just to honor him. And so he said, I will show, verse 2, kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. It's like, let's continue this great relationship that we have. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. So these guys are unarmed. They're diplomats. They're like some of the nicest people that David had because they would be sensitive in this situation. He doesn't send soldiers for a job like this. He doesn't send annoying, obnoxious people. He finds some real diplomatic people and sends them to be a delegation to honor the memory of this man, their ally, who has now died. And so they went there innocently enough. And the princes of the people of Ammon, there are always some people who are ambitious and whenever there's a transition, they want to leverage. We saw it in the past when the way Abner was, you know, after Saul had died. Well, in this case, they're putting a bug in Hanan's ear. Hanan's not the sharpest tool in the drawer. And they said, look, he was thinking probably, oh, it's nice that David sent a delegation. They said, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Wake up, man. These guys are spies. They're just trying to figure out how they can conquer us. So has David not rather sent his servants to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? And Hanan believed them. And he did something that was really stupid that cost his nation plenty. (laughs) He took David's servants and he shaved off half of their beards. They were really proud of their beards. That was a part of their religious system. It was a part of their culture. And so he shaved half of the beard. We wouldn't think that was a big deal, but they did. And then they cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks. We would think that's a big deal. Somebody cuts the seed out of your pants and then sends you to go back home. Go, thank you for coming. So these guys are walking back. They've got half a beard. They have, you know, they're cold in the rear because this hole in their robe. And they were humiliated. And, you know, it's always a horrible thing when you use shame for, you know, when you shame people, it's just always a bad deal. There's never a good time to really shame people. It only creates a problem that's greater, and in fact, it did here. I worry about our world, our culture, because today, shame is one of the main forces that we try to use in order to motivate and influence people. So, you know, if you don't separate your recycled trash from your other trash, you should be ashamed of yourself even though they put it all in the same thing and dump it in the landfill, but that, that's beside the point. You know, it's like, oh, shame on you. If you water your lawn, shame on you. If you use a plastic straw, shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. That is never a healthy way to motivate people. It always just makes you feel like, okay, I give up. This is ridiculous. In this case, it upset David, to see the guys that went there innocently doing this, 
be shamed. Now, he didn't knee-jerk react to it, but he wasn't going to take this sitting down. And so, you know, when David found out what had happened, um, he, he uh, told, they told David in verse 5, he sent to meet them. He didn't go see him because they'd be embarrassed, but the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, just wait there at Jericho. They stopped at Jericho because they're like, I need to, I can sew a patch on my robe, but I need my beard to grow out. And, and so he said, it's cool. Wait right there until your beards have grown and then come back. He goes, I'm working on this. Now, all of a sudden, in Ammon, they started thinking, wait, we're not hearing anything from David. What's going on? And they may have had spies that watched, and they go, David's not happy about this, but the, the time you worry is when he's not doing anything. It's unpredictable. So Ammon, again, lack of leadership. They saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, and then it got real. The people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians from Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Altogether, they hired 32,000 Syrians. Now, Syria was the country that was east of Israel, but north of Ammon. So there was a triangle because there was, uh, you know, here's Syria, big nation. Here's Ammon, pretty big nation. And here's Israel, medium-sized nation nation at the time. So Ammon decided, we better do something to give ourselves some security, because I don't think David's going to be too happy about this, you know, our idea of a funny joke. And so they hired mercenaries, basically. And then in verse 7, David heard of it. And he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. He's like, okay, this is it. And so Joab, now, You remember Joab. He's been with David from back in the wilderness days. And Joab and his brother Abishai, they're kind of, they're like soldiers. They're a little bit unpredictable and out of control. Remember when they, you know, after David had made an agreement of peace with Abner, who had been Saul's general, they went and killed him, tricked him and killed him. And David's like, you guys disgust me. And you're like, why is Joab still in charge of the army? Because he was really good at killing people. And that's what you need from an army. And so even though David was like, he didn't hang out with them, but he understood when you need something done and done right, and it's violent, this is a good guy to send. And so he says, I want you to go down there and take care of this problem in Ammon in this particular city in Ammon. And so it says that um, the people of Ammon in verse 8 came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. So they're like, they're out there at the front of their capital city and they are like going to fight against the Jews. And they're very confident because they knew. They had hired a bunch of Syrians to be around from behind and they stayed out in the field because as soon as they baited the Jewish soldiers to come in, then here would come the Syrians. So the Ammonites were getting pretty cocky about how this was going to go down. And so um, 
in verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he figured it out. Okay, something going on here. Look what he did. He chose some of Israel's best. He got his most elite troops. And he put them in battle array against the Syrians. He goes, you think what we're doing is going after Ammon. But what we're going to do is go after the ones who are the strongest. And our best guys are going to take them out. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. So Abishai would lead the assault against the Ammonites, and Joab would lead the assault against the Syrians. Now, again, when we get th- go through this Bible history, I know for some people the whole idea of war and killing people and everything is just the most horrible thing. Sorry, this is history. This is the way it happens. If there weren't people who were willing to do this kind of stuff, we wouldn't be here today. So... Um, I apologize in advance if this offends your snowflakeness. But um, so they're arrayed for battle against the people of Ammon. And then look at verse 11. This is really critical. Verses 11 and 12 are amazing. So he said, Look, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. He said, Abishai, here's the deal. I have your back and you have my back. We will be back to back and be able to handle a 360 degree assault. We're ready and, in verse 12, be of good courage. This might get ugly. This might be difficult. We have no guarantee of a win. So be courageous. Be ready. And let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. Not like let's protect ourselves or let's protect each other. He understood there's something more at stake here. It's the future of our nation. And you and I are at the forefront of what's going to provide survival for the people of Israel, the people of God. And then he says, and for the cities of our God. And the end of verse 12, I love this. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. He goes, look, we may win, we may lose. We're committing this to the Lord. We're going to do the best that we can, and may God be with us. We're laying it on the line, and we're going to fight this battle. We have a strategy, and we have each other's back. Other than that, let's go. It's time to move. And so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to fight the Syrians, and the Syrians ran off. They were just being paid. They're like, whoa, forget it. They just bailed. So then when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and went and locked themselves up in their city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. It's like, okay, there, that's, that, was taken, that was resolved. But... The Syrians were like, wow, we got defeated. But it was just some of our guys. You know what? I think we need to put David in his place and let's go after him with full force attack. Not 32,000 of us, a bunch of us. And so they saw that they had been defeated by Israel and that hurt their pride. 
They gathered together and they brought all the Assyrians in verse 16 and they came to Helam and Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. So they were ready to come down and attack Israel, actually. Now David goes to work. It's interesting that he sent his two generals and the army before this, but now he's like, I want, I want a part of this. I want to participate in this. This is critical. And so this time he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came to Helam, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers. Wow. And 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians. And struck Shobak, the commander of the army, who died right there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they decided all of a sudden to wave the white flag. They made peace with Israel and served them. They basically go, hey, we're friends, and now we're willing to make contributions to what you guys are doing. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. After he defeated the Syrians... Then they looked over at Ammon and they're like, we're good, (laughs) we're fine. And so therefore, peace is established. Times of peace bring to other kind of problems, as we'll see next week when we get to chapter 11. But we look at this again, it's like, okay, this is just a battle, this is just strategy. Why does the Bible say that all all of these things are there for our benefit, to teach us something? He's certainly teaching us more than military strategy. In fact, this picture that we're given in this chapter, to me is, I mean, there's a lot of lessons in here. We can talk about shame for the rest of the time that we have here. But what I want to call your attention to is Joab and Abishai having each other's back. See, if you know that you're being attacked, your first reaction is, I need to get somewhere where there's a wall So if I'm here and somebody's attacking, if I'm over here at this wall, now at least I know nobody is attacking me from behind. Now I can fight here, 180 degrees. But the truth is, and in life, usually it doesn't work that way. There isn't usually a wall. In life, you're probably, in fact, people tend to smell blood. And if you're being attacked, there are always other people like the Syrians here who are more than willing to jump in. And be a part of it. And so for all of us, even though you may not be physically under attack, the truth is life is doing this to you. We are all under attack. We are actually, (coughs) according to Paul in Ephesians 6, we are all at war. In a war that's much more serious than people just trying to attack us. It's a war that's attacking our soul. See, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. There are things that will destroy us if we allow it to be, and we have to have a strategy or we will lose. If you approach life and say, you know what, I'm just not going to, I'm just going to go with the flow, then you better start learning to speak Syrian or Ammonian (laughs) because you're going to lose if you do that. If you value who you are, you need to be willing to fight. And that's why I love the song that we sang this morning, you know, that 
he's never going to abandon me, that he's always going to be there, that he will always be with me. But strategically, in life, you have choices as to who it is that will have your back. And it's going to determine success or failure to a huge degree. It's why There's so much in the Bible that talks about, you know, how important it is that we watch out for each other, that we are there when, our, when somebody we know is weak, that we can be strong for them, that we can be with them. And you've already figured this out in life, you know. There have been times when everything's fine, but there have been times when you go through a real difficult trial and you could, I could ask you right now, who had your back? And probably, boom, Something's going to come into mind. I can also tell you who didn't have your back. Who is it that deserted you when you needed someone to be there? Boom. You probably have a picture of that person. But what God, I think, wants us to understand, and we can learn it from these brutal soldiers of David's, that every one of us, if we're going to get through life, if we're going to win the battle then it's best not to do it alone. It's true, I'll never walk alone because God is with me, but he has given us each other to fill this role too. And I think we need to be thinking in terms of who has my back and whose back do I have? Because by the way, you've all had experiences where you had somebody else's back and then when the chips were down, they didn't have yours. That doesn't count. Can't get mad about that. Not everyone has to have your back. There can be people that you love dearly, but you just wouldn't count on them to have your back. But you got to figure out who is it that when I am really neat, when I'm being attacked, who is it that that I know would be there on my behalf? Sure, I understand the disappointment when there are people that I thought had my back and they didn't. That's fine. Because it's good for me to figure out who doesn't have my back in order for me to find out who does. And it's also important for me to not spend a lot of energy trying to have the back of somebody who doesn't have my back. There's this mutual thing. It only works if there are two soldiers who go, let's do this. I have your back and you have mine. May God give us the victory that we need. And this is a, whole, a huge part of how we live life if we do it successfully. And this picture here of these guys doing it, to me, is, is something that we should pay careful attention to. Because, and, you know, yeah, nobody's, most, usually people aren't physically assaulting us. You know, that, that's not usually something that we face every day. Once in a while, maybe, you know. But more than that, and, and If you go to Ephesians 6 and you think about the whole armor of God and the battles that we do fight, you can can understand the battle that we're in by looking at the weapons that he tells us to put on. And he says, the first thing that Paul says is this belt of truth. Every day there's a battle for truth in our lives. You want to have somebody who has your back? Have somebody who will tell you the truth. In fact, specifically, have someone who will tell you when you're wrong. Someone who says, you know what? I am just going to be honest with you. 
if somebody, if you're trusting on somebody to have your back and they can't tell you the truth, you're dead. You lose. If we lose truth, we lose everything. And then he goes on, the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness means being fair. If you have somebody who's biased and not fair, if you have somebody who doesn't care about actually doing the right thing, if they don't have the courage to do that, that's fine. Let them go visit funerals. But don't let them have your back. Don't count on them. It's a recipe for disaster. We need people who will tell us the truth. We need people who are willing to do the right thing, whatever whatever is involved in whatever fallout there might be from it. The, the feet, you know, the gospel of peace. People who don't understand the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for us and, and rose again and gives us eternal life and that that's free. If you don't understand the gospel or the helmet of salvation, you're not really, God help you. If you have people trying to watch your back who don't really understand the grace of the gospel, or who haven't really taken on the helmet of salvation. But just because somebody's a Christian doesn't mean you should trust them to have your back. I have, and I'm sure you have, been more disappointed by Christians than I've ever been by non-Christians. But when you're looking for somebody to have your back, that is kind of an essential. And then Paul talks about the shield of faith. Faith, faith doesn't just mean that you believe really strong. Faith means that you're going for it without having all of the evidence. Faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith is the ability to, and it's perfect, a perfect example of it is right there in in verse 11. Here's what we're going to do, but in verse 12, it's up to God. I'm going to take a chance on sticking with you. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm going to be there for you regardless. I have, the, I have faith in you. I have faith in God. And even though I don't have all the answers, I have your back and I believe. And I will take that belief into unknown territory to see wherever it leads me. I know faith means I might be wrong, but I'm going with this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without somebody who has faith, you really can't depend on them having your back. And then ultimately, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I want people who value God's Word. Not just who value a few verses that they know and live by. Somebody who's willing to look at the Bible and go, let's consider this. Let's not live just by my interpretation of the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's study it together. You cannot be equipped to really have somebody's back unless the Word of God is speaking to you constantly, and it does. It's why we teach through the Bible. It's why, you know, today we're going through a a chapter uh, about brutal warfare, and nobody really... I mean, I would way rather ultimately be talking about just how life is, is lovely and beautiful and heaven is, you know, but we go through the Bible because, man, if you're going to be depended on, you better be able to deal with all of the truth. Again, it started with truth. It ends with the word of God on the whole armor of God because ultimately 
That's what is the dividing line. And so what you have to ask yourself is, who is it that I can count on that helps me in all of these areas, that helps me face the truth, that encourages me to do the right thing, even if people don't think of it, that believes in salvation, that believes in in what it is to, to be a child of God, who has faith, who doesn't have to have all the answers. They will take a chance on me. And I know that's offensive to some people, but faith essentially means that you take a chance based on what you know, even though you don't have other information. And then that there are people of the word. It's vital to our survival as Christians that we form relationships whereby, and you don't need a bunch of people. You don't, I mean, there are a lot of people who would say, hey, I have your back. I, I know, I've had people tell me they have my back and they didn't. It's like, fine. There are people that I've had their back and they didn't have mine. There are probably people who would say that, boy, they had my back, but then I didn't have theirs. Doesn't matter. You work your way through until you go, you know what? It'd really be good if I had somebody, if I had a few people who I thought, if everyone turns on me, I think that person will still do the best they can to defend me. I think they will be there. I don't think I have to worry about whether or not they're with me. I know they're with me. They're fighting the battle that I'm fighting just in a different direction. And I'm so thankful for people who have played that role in my life. Heck, I'm even thankful for the people who failed to do that. Because, like, perfect. That eliminates that person. Not as... Some of them can still be my dear friends. I just know. They just don't have what it takes to fight at your back. It's fine. It's not mandatory. But you better have somebody who can do that for you. And some of the deepest hurts in your life will be happening to you so that you can figure out who does have your back and who doesn't. And it may not be family members even. And that's okay. I mean, family members are too closely involved with you. But there are people who just, and they probably aren't the people that you would first think of. Like Joab and Abishai, they might be people who aren't the, you know, syrupy spiritual, always hitting you with verses and always, you know, the people who act the sweetest are fake. So, sorry, if that's you, I apologize, but it's still true. The people who... The people who will really have your back are like Joab and Abishai. You're like, I don't know, man. Sometimes they really are a little different. And then you go, but you know what? When I hit bottom, they'll be there. I know that. And that's so important for all of us. It's one of the reasons why church is important, by the way. Now, there are some people who are fine. Come to church, listen to the study, go home, don't talk to anybody, don't do anything. I just did that. There are other people who are fine just clicking it on and sitting there in their pajamas and watching, feeling like, okay, I just did church. But, and I love those people, and they're fine, and actually, those kind of people are easier for us, no trouble at all. We do what we do, and people hear it, people listen on the radio, and, and, you know, it doesn't hurt anything, it doesn't do anything. But am I counting on, am I depending on those kind of people? No, not really. But, Here's the, like, in church, when you do church, opportunities come up 
that are more important than you might realize. For instance, we have men's ministry that does things. They have a study on Tuesday mornings. What those guys are doing, they're having each other's back. They're dealing with what's going on in their lives, and you know one of those guys will probably be there for you. Some of them won't be, but some of them might. We do, like our, this Saturday we have a men's breakfast. I'm speaking at this one, but it's not about breakfast. And it's not even about, I'm going to, I'll teach a little study. We'll do some worship. That's not even what it's about. What I enjoy about the men's breakfast is sitting at a table with guys and talking to them. Because I'm connecting with them and I'm realizing, yeah, some of them I would never count on. But some of them, if I was on the mat at the count of nine, I think they might be there. We're, our women's study that's coming up in February, I'm so excited. I've been working with Natasha Westerfeld as we prepare the studies for that. It's going through First Peter. It's, I'm really excited about it. I wish I was a woman. Um, one, of, one of the only times I wish I was a woman because this study is going to be amazing. But it isn't so that you can learn about First Peter and hope. The study is there so that you can connect with other ladies and you'll find some of them will have your back in a way that nobody else will. It's just the way it works. It's why we, you know, there'll be a little teaching and then it's going to be discussion questions and spending time together. It's a strategic way to connect for the battle that we face the rest of the week. And so... And you can sign up for the women's study online or there's a table out there today where um, if you have questions, I'm sure Natasha could, could uh, give you a little more information, but you can sign up. But that's what it's about. It's like we're in a war. Do you want to connect with people who will have your back? And it's only going to be some of the people. There's gonna be, there are other people who are totally fine as diplomats. They're like nice and friendly and they're walking around with their rear end, you know, exposed and half their beard gone. And you're like, okay, nice guy. But there are going to be people in your life that make all the difference. And so men's and women's ministries, that's kind of what they're about. We have our season classics, which has an event coming up this Saturday as well at 1230 for games and lunch and everything. We do it because people, especially as people, you know, get older and a lot of their friends have you know, cowards that have moved away and now they're snowed in in some podunk place. It's like, okay, who has my back now? You can't have my back because you're living in a dump halfway across the country. So is there somebody here who's going to have my back? We all need this. And trust me, as you get older, you don't retire from the battle. The battle starts coming from every direction. And you better figure out a way to connect with people who will have your back. And, and so that's, that's why we have season classics. It's why we do everything that we do. It's, it's really an opportunity for you to discover, not, not everybody, but to figure out who actually is going to be there. You don't have to completely trust a whole bunch of people. But if you don't have anybody that you can trust, if you don't have anybody that you know, if something bad goes down and you're like, there's really nobody I can call them. Who's watching your back? Who's encouraging you to do the right thing? Who will listen to you and not just judge you? Who will listen to your pain and not just tell you how to fix it? Or tell you, well, you had this coming. You shouldn't have done that. That's what happens. You don't need that. 
What you need is people who go, I'm back here. If you get weak, tell me, and I'll be there for you. If I, if I get weak, I'll tell you. This is essentially what church is supposed to be because we need it, because we are in a battle, and we need to find those kinds of connections. And usually they won't be with the people that we would expect. Usually, and a lot of times people pull out of the whole process because somebody burned them. Somebody burned you, great. Then you figured out that person doesn't have my back. So you start looking around and praying, and then you always also have to ask yourself, if you're whining about nobody having your back, whose back do you have? Who is it that you are fulfilling this role for? And it is one of the most important questions of life, ultimately, is this. In the end, like the song says, you're never alone. You've never been abandoned because he is my inheritance. He's my strength. He's my shield. But I'll tell you this, to go through life, if you have somebody who you can say, I got this side, you got that side, I'll let you know if I need help, you let me know if you need help. It's one of the most precious things in all of life. And that's what, that's the thought I take most from this chapter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us what it's like to have somebody who will be your attorney no matter what. You are our advocate. As soon as we need help, you're there. But you have called us to be that for others. Help us to be totally comfortable with a lot of people in life just being friendly and diplomatic. But help us to find those people that we can count on as we fight this war that you tell us that we are in. So God, please lead and guide us to be these kind of people, to find these kind of people. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.